Ninth overall, would you please stand with me in the reading of the gospel today? We're going to be going into Matthew chapter 21. And it says, Now when they approached Jerusalem and they came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples telling them, Go to the village ahead of you. Right away you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. That's Jesus. If anyone says anything to you, you are to say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Zechariah. Tell the people of Zion, Look, your king is coming to you, unassuming and seated on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did just as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those following kept shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And as he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was thrown into an uproar, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And this is where the Palm Sunday reading usually ends. But we're going to go a couple extra verses today. Um, then Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all those who were selling and buying in the temple courts and turned over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are turning it into a den of robbers. And we're going to skip a bit ahead where he says in chapter 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would have none of it. Look, your house, your temple is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me from now until you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And so as Jesus was going out of the temple courts and walking away, his disciples came to show him the temple buildings. And he said to them, do you see all these things? I tell you the truth. Not one stone will be left on another. All will be torn down. So Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you illuminate this text to us? Would you show us who Jesus is, who your, what your gospel truly is, your goodness, your truth, your love? Would you show us the areas in our hearts that need correction and repentance and shifting towards you? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> All right. Well, hello, everyone. I see most of you are all still here, even after the three-hour AGM. Uh, I promise the sermon won't be that long. Um, anyone lose their salvation? No, no, okay. Shell was warning about that. Um, yeah, how do you know Jesus exists? We're all still here. All right. <clears throat> yeah, for those of you who missed it, we, we went for three hours talking about Jesus. Right, guys? Right? No? <laughs> all right, that, that was my first AGM at Pilgrim, by the way, so, so thanks for that welcome. And <laughs> I also attended another AGM the day after. It was like, it, it was, uh, so me and Grace, we play for this pop symphony orchestra, and they had their AGM on Monday, and it was 20 minutes long. I, I didn't know... <laughs> Agents could be that short. They, they skipped the finance readings, and, and they just talked about, oh, yeah, we're, this is where we're at, this is where we're going. It was, it was different, you know, different, different, totally different organization. But, you know, I'm not saying that that's how we should do things. Okay, guys? <clears throat> so, church, how, how are we doing? Um, you know, I do want to encourage you guys, because you guys are passionate. I mean, why would you spend three hours at an AGM if you didn't love and care for this church? Um, you guys are excited, I think, or nervous, but I think 
excited, fired up to see about where all of this is going. Now, the question for today is, if you'll allow me to challenge you as your associate pastor, are we fired up about Jesus? And in your heads, you might be thinking, yeah, of course we're fired about Jesus. Well, which Jesus? Because in the Gospel of Matthew, there's actually two Jesuses. You got Jesus of the Gospels, you know, the, the one saying, blessed is the name of the Lord. You know, you got this one. But you also have this other Jesus, Jesus Barabbas. Um, I'll just read a tiny bit from Matthew 27, where it says, During the Passover feast, the governor was accustomed to release one prisoner to the crowd, whomever they wanted. At that time, they had in custody a notorious prisoner named Jesus Barabbas. Uh, now, if you look throughout the other Gospels, he's mentioned in all four Gospels. He's described as a rebel in Mark. Um, he's someone who committed murder during an insurrection. Uh, Luke describes him similarly. And then in the Gospel of John, he's called a revolutionary. And if you go back to Matthew, it says in verse 20, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas to be freed and then to have Jesus the Christ crucified. There are two Jesuses. What did Jesus the Messiah do to anger those chief priests and elders so much that he was given over to be executed, you know, in the most brutal, painful way imaginable at the time? Why did they, you know, prefer Jesus Barabbas over Jesus Christ? What kind of gospel did each of the Jesuses preach? Now, now we don't have any of Jesus Barabbas' words, but we can, we do know his actions. We can infer some things from them. Uh, you know, it says that he was a revolutionary. He fought, he incited a riot, he, was mur he murdered people in that riot. Um, and, and I think it was because he was trying to make a change, you know? He was, uh, he was someone who stood for something. He was someone who was willing to fight to get what he wanted. He was someone who wasn't happy with the status quo. He was someone who uh, wasn't happy with the way maybe the Romans were treating his kin, his brothers, his sisters, his family. Maybe some people even saw him as a type of hero, as a savior. Um, you know, his actions had this clear message. Salvation is yours for the taking. We must fight. We must take back our glory, our place in this world. We, us Jewish people, we will not be dishonored. We will not be ashamed of who we are anymore. We won't be oppressed. We will fight and we will overthrow and we will win. You know, was, I think that for them was a pretty attractive gospel message. And the big idea of today, um, in this second shift in our series of five shifts of true revival and reformation, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a bigger gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a bigger gospel. Yet there are these competing, smaller gospels, these different messages of hope, these different messages of salvation, these different Jesuses that we are often in danger of assenting to or believing in or submitting to. These other gospels will make their own religious systems. They will make their own churches. They're going to build their own temples. And in our text, we, we see today how these crowds prefer this Jesus Barabbas gospel of mes his message of his methods of violence over Christ's kingship. We also hear of Christ's condemnation of the temple and the religious system of that day and its leaders in Jerusalem, you know, the ones who prefer Barabbas. And we also know in history that temple was destroyed in 70 AD. We can also look 
in the history, you know, Christian history, there have been many reformations. There have been many corrupt systems, uh, corrupt church structures that had to be challenged uh, or torn down and rebuilt. You know, you, you can look at the third and fourth century. You got these desert monastic fathers who left the church and they went into the desert and they became monks. Um, they were protesting, you know, the, the wealth and the power and the political illusion that the church became a part of. And, you know, that's actually happened many, many centuries. Like, you can look at the Franciscan monks in the 13th century. They did basically the same thing. You got the 16th century reform you know, they protested the sale of indulgences. They protested, you know, the nominalist, you know, Baptist. No, uh, they, they protested like the nominalist kind of Christianity, where you say you're Christian but you don't do anything that's Jesusy. Um, you know, the leaders at that time were living these sin-filled, debaucherous lives. Uh, you can look more recently into, like, let's say, the German Confessing Church. So, if you know about the German Confessing Church during the uh, Nazi reign, they were the ones who were rebelling—I guess not rebelling, but standing for what the real Jesus, the real gospel was—and they were persecuted, they were killed. Um, each of these different reform movements, whether you look at history, you know, they're protesting, they're reforming against those aberrations of, those, of the church that assented, I think, to a different gospel, a smaller gospel, one that accumulated rather than distributed, one that conquered rather than gave up, one that possessed rather than sought to give thanks, one that privileged those at the center rather than going out to the margins. How about today? Are we on the brink of a new reformation? Well, if you look at just broader society, take a step back a bit, um, and you look at this post-pandemic world, you know, you got this war going on in Europe, you got the pressure for um, the shifting of world powers away from America, you got the constant threat of this collapse of the financial system with the collapse of, you know, the banks, whether 2008 or 2023, you know, you got all these once-in-a-lifetime financial crises, you got the polarization, which we've all seen during COVID, the radicalization between people of different ideologies, you got the emergence of AI, which is another kind of crazy thing going on, and, and there's this general anxiety and awareness that change is happening, whether we like it or not, um, so how is the church going to be in all of this? How can we keep Pilgrim from just being caught up and completely swayed by these cultural tidal waves? How can we keep from just being another political tool or just another symbol of the culture completely undifferentiated from the culture? How do we keep this place from being just an arena to fight our ideological battles and, and, or like a way for me to build my own wealth and kingdom, you know? Rather, what if we could, as Leslie Newbegin calls it, how could we be a signpost, a foretaste, or an instrument of Jesus' kingship? How can we make sure that we have the right Jesus, the right gospel, rather than that smaller gospel, that smaller Jesus, that, that Barabbas-type Jesus? How can we avoid Christ's condemnation in Matthew, you know, when he says, you know, this temple will not stand. How can we make sure that there's going to be something left standing here when all is said and done? Now, I personally think that, you know, if I can encourage you guys, I think Pilgrim is on a good path, you know, but we have to stay humble. We have to let the text challenge us uh, and confront us and, and make sure that we don't slip away or get tempted by these smaller gospels, these smaller, less than Jesus Christ type things. So let's do the hard work. Let's uh, examine ourselves now. Let's examine the text, let's probe it, and let's see what areas we need to confess in ourselves and make sure that we grasp the, the vast scope that is Christ's gospel, how wide and how deep and how loving God is for us. And so um, let's turn to Matthew 21, 5. 
get into the Palm Sunday text a bit here. Uh, you can either turn to that or to Zechariah chapter 9. Uh, Matthew 21.5 says, Look, your king is coming to you, unassuming and seated on a donkey. Now, why a donkey? If you have been in any Palm Sunday sermon, then you know why the donkey. But for everyone else, let's, you can turn to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Um, and it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is legitimate and victorious. He is humble and riding on a donkey, on a young donkey, the foal of a female donkey. I will, I'm going to add one more verse here because whenever they reference anything in the Old Testament, you kind of got to read the whole context a bit more. You should look a little bit extra. It says, I will remove the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be removed. Then he will announce peace to the nations. His dominion will be from sea to sea and from Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. So you can see that the donkey is in contrast to the chariot, the, the war horse, the, the battle bow. Rather than coming to conquer and kill, to have like a hostile takeover, um, the true king, the legitimate king, as it says, comes announcing peace to all the nations. So I think the first sign of Jesus Christ's bigger gospel, rather than the smaller gospel of Barabbas, is that it's one of peace. Uh, you know, and I'm not going to go into just war theory or, or pacifism or why Anabaptists should be pacifists and all that kind of stuff. But, but you know, I, I think if Jesus came with a donkey rather than a war horse and he was willing to die on the cross and forgive his enemies and say, you know, they don't know what they're doing, uh, I think we should model that way more than the other of the war horse. <clears throat> All right, so I also want to turn your attention to 21, 9, and 23, 39 in Matthew, uh, if you have your Bibles. It, it says this repeated line, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, and in 23, 9, if you look at there, or 39, it says, you know, Jesus laments over Jerusalem and says, you know, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Have any of you here been confused by this double or like the, the name of the standout to you before, that there's like two blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord? Because um, the crowd, like they already welcomed Jesus, right? Like they already welcomed him in, they already saw him, and they said, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So why did Jesus say this line here in 2339, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord? Um, so there's a couple options for interpreting this, depending on whether you separate the crowd that welcomes Jesus in 21 with the crowd that hands them over to be murdered. Uh, so the, the first interpretation would be the, the, there's like these faithful people who welcome Jesus and, and there's these unfaithful people who, uh, who you know, get Jesus executed. And then so Jesus says to the people who are murderous and, and stuff like that, you guys won't see me again until you say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so this message is like a message of hope, not, not pro a promise, but like a message that if these, you know, these evil people repent and they turn from their ways and they see him as Lord and they call him Lord, then, then they will see him again. Um, I'm, I'm okay with that interpretation, but the one that I land on is actually the, the two crowds are actually the same crowd. So the one that welcomes Jesus in chapter 21, the one who say, you know, who lay down their cloaks and, and they bring all the palm branches are the same crowd that he is saying this message to. Um, and I think it's because when they welcomed him in, in, in chapter 21, I think what they were wanting was a Jesus that was more like Barabbas. I think they wanted him, they wanted a type of king who would get off that donkey and, and get a battle bow, you know? They wanted the gospel of maybe taking, taking back their city. But Jesus doesn't do that. 
And so what Jesus says in chapter 23 is, hey, you won't see me again until you see me as the real me, as a real Jesus. This one, this one who's on the donkey, this one who is for peace, this one who's for true worship, trade your false idea of what the king is supposed to look like for the real me, the real Lord. When you recognize me, when you recognize the real Jesus as I want, then you will see me truly. Now, I'm curious to see which interpretation you guys favor. You know, I, I have a bias, but... Um, all right, I'm going to also give you guys uh, some attention towards this worship that's offered to Jesus as he's entering Jerusalem. Okay, so, he, so all these people are worshiping him with cloaks and palm branches. I'm going to try really hard not to divert here because I just read this. Okay, I'm going to divert a little bit. Um, I, I read this article last night on Christianity Today, and there's like this uh, Isam Macaulay. I don't know if you know him, but he wrote this book called Reading While Black. He's, he's like the hottest biblical scholar, or one of them right now. Uh, but he wrote this Palm Sunday, focus not on the palms, but meditate on the donkey because he says... Um, the, it's the people who come with the, with, the, with the palm branches and the cloaks. It's not Jesus who asks them to worship him in that kind of way. And if you actually look into First uh, Maccabees, which is the intertestamental period, so a couple hundred years before the Gospels were written, um, the Maccabees, the Maccabean revolt, if you know anything about that, there was this Jewish revolt where uh, this, this savior-type king came and took over Jerusalem for a while. And the, Jew, uh, the Jewish people had like their their place in the world again. And they welcome that conqueror with palm branches. And so the palm branches are more of a sign of military victory. All right, diversion over. <clears throat> okay, but yeah, okay, so, but yeah, it's interesting because if you look in all four gospels and you, and you know, like, because I'm wondering how did Jesus receive that worship? So, you know, all these people are laying down their cloaks, they're laying out this red carpet and they're worshiping him with, with palm branches. It doesn't describe how Jesus' reaction to all of that was. Um, like, was, was he, like, moved to tears, like, oh, oh, wow, this is so touching? Or was he, was he smiling? Was he just, like, basking in all the glory? Or, or was he, like, you know, you, 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 you guys are going to kill me next week? <laughs> you know, like, what, what was, like, when he was writing, like, what was his expression? You know, like, we, we don't know that, like, how did he take that worship? We don't know that. We don't know how he felt about it. But what we do know is what he does immediately afterwards. Um, so you, you go to verse 12. Like right after he receives all of this worship, he enters the temple. And he starts driving out those who were selling and buying in the marketplace, uh, those who were you know, selling the doves. And he's turning over. He's flipping these tables, these chairs. And he says, my house will not be a house of you know, robbers. He says, my house will be a house of prayer, but you are turning it into a den of robbers. Now, if you remember shift one from last week, Jesus always looks like God, or God always looks like Jesus. So if you want to know what God looks like, if you want to know what kind of worship God enjoys, you can look at Jesus. So what kind of worship did Jesus respond to? I mean, he's worthy of that honor that the crowd showed him. Like, he's worthy of all that praise, that they, that, you know, all the adoration. He's worthy of all that. You know. In John, it says the rocks would cry out and worship him if these people didn't. But why did Jesus go from being honored in that kind of very public, very visible way to then disrupting the temple worship? My theory is that he wanted to show what true worship looks like. And so he quotes these two passages. Uh, you go to Isaiah 56, and I'm going to, again, read the full context to you so you can see what he says. Uh, and, and so in Isaiah, it says, this is what the Lord says, promote justice do what's right. I am ready to deliver you, to vindicate you openly, and the people who do this will be blessed. 
The people who commit themselves to obedience, who observe the Sabbath and do not defile it, who refrain from doing anything that is wrong. No foreigner, no refugee who becomes a follower of the Lord should say, the Lord will certainly exclude me from his people. The eunuch, the one who cannot bear children, should say, look, I'm like a dried up tree. For this is what the Lord says, for the eunuchs who observe my Sabbath and choose what pleases me and are faithful to my covenant, I will set up within my temple and within my walls a monument that will be better than sons and daughters. I will set up a permanent monument for them that will remain. As for the foreigners, the refugees who become followers of the Lord and serve him, who love the name of the Lord and want to be his servants, all who observe the Sabbath and do not defile it, and who are faithful to my covenant, I will bring them to my holy mountain. I will make them happy in the temple where people pray to me, and their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my temple will be known as a house of prayer, or my temple will be known as a temple where all nations may pray. So there's this another hint of the bigger gospel that Jesus is bringing in, is that his gospel is one of justice. Now, Sabbath-keeping is actually a huge justice issue. Uh, we talked about this a little bit in our discipleship course, if you were there. Um, but we often miss the point when we look at everything through our kind of individualistic Western lens. Um, like we, we, can tend, we tend to look at these biblical commands as like these individual commands. Um, do I personally keep the Sabbath? You know, do I set aside time to stop, to rest, to, um, to delight in other people, to delight in God and to worship God? And, and those four questions, by the way, very good questions to ask. And you should ask them every shells. You should test yourself with that. But, but you have to um, remember that the first time the Sabbath command, you know, keep the Sabbath command, the first time that that was given, it was given to a whole like, nation of ex-slaves. Uh, people who used to work seven days a week under this brutal economic system based on slavery. And so as God freed those people, he gives them this command so that they won't be like the Pharaoh. They won't oppress their neighbor, their foreigner, their brothers, their widows, the, the, the kids, their employees like Pharaoh did. So the, this command in this context, if you look at it communally, it's asking, do we allow for others to have Sabbath? Do we stop ways that enslave others? Do we, uh, do we demand others to serve us all day, all night? Does our current level of consumption enslave others in a way? Or you know, whether with how we source our food or electronics or clothing, uh, can we give others a break? Locally here, even within this church, is there a way that we can be family for one another so that the overworked parents, the maybe new parents, <laughs> Okay, I'm just being a little selfish now. We could have a day to stop and rest in the line. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, let's get it off of me. Uh, <clears throat> but, okay, you get, other people are probably struggling way more than I will. But anyways, keeping Sabbath, but keeping Sabbath is a huge justice issue. You know, it takes all of us, you know, it takes whole communities to make it possible for individuals to Sabbath. Um, it takes partner with, partnership with each other and maybe even partnership beyond these walls. Also in this passage is concerned for foreigners, uh, for the refugee. You know, will we welcome refugees and immigrants here? That's a big question. How about the eunuch? Um, I spent way too long reading about eunuchs. I'm not going to get into it. Uh, single, you know, but let's, let's, let's not, <clears throat> yeah, we, we won't divert there. But, you know, you can look, like, let's just contextualize the eunuch for today. Singles, people who cannot procreate for reasons like their body, their genetics, medical conditions, or maybe even sexual orientation. Do we welcome everyone here to pray if this house will be a house of prayer for all? Or do we put up barriers? Um, 
Yeah. The second part, uh, let's move around. The second part of this, you know, so Jesus says to those in, in the temple, you know, he says, you are turning this house into a den of robbers. Now, let's, this is the second passage that Jesus quotes, and this is to quote Jeremiah 7, 11, which we're going to read kind of in fullness now from starting in verse 1. Uh, and in here it says, the Lord said to Jeremiah, Stand at the gate in the Lord's temple and proclaim this message. Listen, the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel says, change the way you've been living and do what's right. If you do, then I'm going to allow you to continue to live in this land. Stop putting your confidence in the false belief that says we're safe because the temple of the Lord is here. The temple of the Lord is here. The temple of the Lord is here. You must change the way that you've been living and do what's right. You must treat one another fairly. Stop oppressing resident foreigners who live in your land. Uh, stop oppressing children who've lost their fathers, women who've lost their husbands. Stop killing the innocent people in this land. Stop paying attention, uh, allegiance to other gods. This will only bring about your ruin. If you stop doing these things, then I will allow you to continue to live in this land that I gave to your ancestors as a lasting possession. But just look at you. You are putting your confidence in a false belief that will not deliver you. You steal you murder, you commit adultery, you lie when you swear on oath, you sacrifice to the god Baal, you pay allegiance to other gods when you have not previously known, then you come and you stand in my presence in this temple that I've claimed as my own, and you say, we're safe. You think you are so safe that you go on doing all these hateful sins. Do you think this temple I've claimed as my own is to be a den of robbers? You had better take note. I've seen for myself what you have done, says the Lord. You have refused to respond when I called you to repent, so I will destroy this temple I've claimed as my own. This temple that you are trusting to protect you. Oh man, Jeremiah must have gotten a lot of flack for saying those words. Um, but Jesus is saying that the temple in Jerusalem has become this den of robbers. Now, this isn't to mean that they're actively like robbing each other in the temple. You know, there's no conclusive evidence that the money changers, you know, those people selling doves, that they were like overcharging or something like that. But rather, it became a hideout, a den of robbers. As in, robbers came there and they just hung out there. They they treated it as if it was like a safe house. Um, they performed their sacrifices. You know, they gave their tithes. They thought that that would justify them. That that would keep them safe. Then they went out and they started robbing and oppressing the poor, the widow, the stranger, the orphan. Okay, so you have to think a bit, though. Like, did they actively hold them up by gunpoint and like say, hey, give me your goods? Um, probably not. But what did they rob them of? I think they robbed them of something even greater in value. I think they robbed them of their humanity. I think they robbed them of their place to belong in God's community. Now, look, if the priests and the Pharisees, they're meant to accurately show and teach who God is, who God is supposed to be like, and then they give this aberration, again, this false image, this different God, this different gospel, a Barabbas-type God, you know, someone who's vindictive, someone who's angry and murderous and xenophobic and ableist, you know, and then they're told that, hey, God created us in his image. We're meant to be like that kind of God, which is in Genesis 1, right? But that's the image that they're given, is, is this type of a God then I think they're robbing all these people of their chance to be truly human. We can only imitate what we know. And so Jesus, you know, he calls them all. They're like lost sheep without a shepherd. You know, that's why Jesus says to these Pharisees, he says, woe to you, you hypocrites. You know, you don't enter the kingdom of God, and then you deny entry to all those who even try. And so we get this mother imagery from Jesus. You know, oh, how I wanted to gather you all like chicks under a hen's wings. So Jesus pronounces his judgment on the temple. He says, this is all going to get torn down. God is here. God's leaving. You won't see God again until you proclaim that I am the one coming in the name of the Lord. 
Now, you read everything else in 21 to 23, you'll see that it's all pretty harsh stuff. I'll give you a brief little outline in your notes. I'm just going to highlight two things. Um, Matthew 21, 18 to 22, this is the part where he curses the fig tree. Um, and so he, he sees this fig tree, he's, it's got all these leaves, and it looks like it should have fruit, but there's no fruit. And this fig tree was a symbol of the temple, a symbol of the leaders in Jerusalem who had all these appearances of righteousness and goodness, but no fruit. And you look at every single time a tree is mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew, it almost always has to do with, will this tree bear fruit? And if not, then it's going to get axed and thrown into the fire. Um, I'm also going to highlight, so in chapter 23, there are these seven woes against the Pharisees. He says, like, woe to you experts in the law. Woe to you Pharisees, you hypocrites. Woe to you blind guides. Because you put up, again, with this outward appearance, looking holy, but you don't produce the fruits of repentance. You, you worship with your tithes, but you neglect the greater things of justice and mercy and faithfulness. And so Jesus says, woe to you, woe to them. And it's kind of no wonder that Jesus, <laughs> that the Pharisees wanted Jesus dead. He, he kind of pushed their buttons. But I think also he called them to shift their belief in who God was, and they rejected it. Like Jesus revealed this different God, this different gospel to them. He, they, they, and they wanted to reject this idea that God would, you know, God would come through Jesus, that God would come in flesh to save sinners rather than honor these Pharisees and give them what they want. They rejected the idea that God would come to save the ethnic other. They rejected the idea that, that God's temple, his house, would be a place for all nations rather than just their own nation. They rejected the idea that God would prioritize the marginalized, the, the, the tax collector, the, the, the prostitute, the lepers, that, that God would welcome those types of people into the dinner table. They rejected the idea that God would defeat death by dying and resurrecting, that God would proclaim power and victory over all of the spiritual powers of the age, especially that of sin and the power of death that it has, that God would release creation from death anxiety. They rejected this type of God that would send his own spirit to dwell in all men and women to, uh, to see God as he truly is in Jesus and to be empowered to live like him. And even more, there's more, that God would adopt us all as sons and daughters and give us an inheritance, an everlasting one that would go so that we go on and on, that we would never be lacking in anything. This bigger gospel, the Pharisees, the leaders, they rejected it. They didn't want, I think, what they couldn't grasp and contain. Instead, they wanted something smaller. They wanted Barabbas. They wanted exclusive glory. They wanted... Um, something that they could keep to themselves that they didn't need to share. They wanted a different community. They wanted maybe one that just looked like them. So they chose Jesus Barabbas, the violent one, the over Jesus Christ. So who will we choose today? Will we seek to build a church of our own making? Will we try to make a place where everyone just looks and thinks the same, where the focus is on getting what we want? you know, consuming the other, privileging ourselves, privileging those in power? Will we make our church about ourselves, our political or ideological beliefs, or will we choose the bigger gospel? I believe that God is still here. I see his goodness, his faithfulness, his, his mercy in your lives. And I think that he is calling us as a community to be a place of belonging for all. And, I mean, it's in our mission statement. You know, we exist to love our city, to invite our neighbors to root you know, and, and flourish in that life of Jesus. And so let's do that, you know. 
Let's make sure that we don't confuse the two. Let's make sure that we don't confuse the Barabbas with the real Jesus. And so how do you test to see which one that we got? You know, Jesus says that every good tree bears fruit. Um, and so the fruit of Jesus Christ, according to the Apostle Paul, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Um, you know, I think when you see repentance, when you see mercy, when you see self-sacrificial giving and love, I think that's a good sign. And I see you see that here. Um, I think we can also uh, test ourselves in this community. So um, Dr. Paul Eddy, he is one of the professors of biblical and theological studies uh, over in the States, and he's one of the key resources behind this second shift that we're doing here today of the five shifts. Um, he says that the church, this family of God, is the primary crucible, the primary testing place where we can practice this uh, action of taking up our cross daily. This, this is the place. This church, this community, is the place where we are called to remain in difficulties, especially when it gets difficult. When we stay in the mess rather than leave, uh, when we stay when it gets messy, that's where we grow. That's where we stretch in agape love, the, the Jesus kind of love. Um, when we stay here when it gets messy is when we grow into Christ-likeness. Um, the true church is not just like a social club where everyone thinks and acts the same. It's a place where we're meant to have conflict, where we're meant to have difference. It's not a place where you just leave at the first sign of conflict and difference. You know, that's, that's a social club. I think we are meant to be a community of missional disciples. We practice mission in terms of moving out of ourselves, our self-centeredness into Christ-centeredness when we're in the church. And so the barometer, I think the test to see how well are we maturing as believers, as disciples of Jesus, is to see how well do we respond in conflict. Um, the more mature believer, in my opinion, the more mature you are, the more you can navigate those difficult relationships with people who are not similar to you. Uh, the more you can navigate gray zones uh, and not lose your footing, I think that is the sign of a more mature believer. And so I think the church even becomes an instrument of salvation. We become the, the tool, the instrument of salvation when we treat it as the place where we lay down our lives, where, we, where all of our preferences, our proclivities, our musical tastes, um, where we lay that down to honor the other person and also to challenge the other person for something greater than just individual selves. I'll end with a bit of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He is a German theologian who was executed in uh, 1945 by the Nazis. He was part of the Confessing Church. And he writes in Life Together, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. God hates the wishful dreaming because it makes a dreamer proud and pretentious. Those who dream of this idolized community demand that it be fulfilled by God and by others and then by themselves. And so they enter the community of Christians with their demands set up by their own law. And then they judge one another and God accordingly. No, it is not we who build. Christ builds the church. And so um, Jeffrey B. Kelly, he's, he's a translator of Bonhoeffer's work. He, he summarizes his thoughts of the church and community where the church for Bonhoeffer is a place where we recognize God's image in the other person and we look at other people through the perspective of Christ. And through that perspective, we resist attempts to coerce, to dominate, to take over the other person, force them to maybe think the way we think or whatever. But instead, we love them as they are for who they are. 
And every single person in this kind of Christian community contributes to the dynamic of living together. You know, when you think of the talented, the untalented, the devout, the less devout, the sociable, the loner, uh, those are his words. You know, we should rejoice in the other. Rather than judge or classify or, you know, put people in rankings, we should rejoice that we have this opportunity. It's, it's a privilege, and it's given by God through the church, that we have this opportunity to grow in that spirit and that agape love by being concerned for the other. And he says that for Bonhoeffer, the strength of a Christian community lies in their concern with the weakest, the most different of the other of the people here. And so, church, as we look to the type of worship that Jesus responded to, the type of worship that Jesus was looking for in the temple, um, can we be that kind of church? Can we take part in this second shift towards a bigger gospel that invites diversity, that invites community and belonging and, and true agape-type love, where salvation is not just getting to heaven when you die, but salvation becomes, it's a place of becoming. It's an ongoing process where we grow and we mature into the image of Christ. And we can only do that, I think, together. So if that desire is in you, would you bow your heads and pray with me and invite the worship team to come up as well. Spirit of God, Holy Spirit, you reveal, you're the one who reveals the real Jesus. So would you show us your way, the real you, Jesus? Would you fill us, would you open our eyes and help us root ourselves in you so that we can bear the fruit of the kingdom, so that we can bear love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control? Would, would you keep us, would you help us be kept in repentance? Would you help us to shift all that we are towards you would you lead us away from temptation, away from those smaller gospels, those other violent Jesuses? So in the name of Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, we pray, have mercy on us. Amen.